0: My name is Johan Norberg and today is February 8th of 2019 and I'm here with Christine Lipner at the Central Library for the R Street Star Stories project at the Brooklyn Public Library. So what's your Brooklyn story? Well, my Brooklyn story is that I was born here and uh, for the first half of my life it was just a place on the map because I was five months old when my parents left Brooklyn. Okay, so I really had no memories of Brooklyn in any way, it was just a very abstract sort of place um, as I said my, you know, my, my grandparents my maternal grandparents came from Poland and they settled in Brooklyn and then when my mother was a young lady a young woman, she met this guy who ended up being my father who was Polish and uh, throughout the war years, the years of World War II, my father was here in the United States, okay? Uh, Because he was a a sailor on, on on freight ships, on cruise ships, and by just one of those quirks of fate, he happened to be out of the country when World War II began, so lucky for him. But my parents were already married at that time, so my mother somehow got him out of England into the United States, and that was where he made his home for the rest of the war. When the war was over, he uh, went back as quickly as he could. He, I remember he told me that he flew uh, an old Dakota plane that felt like it was going to fall apart at any second uh, over the ruins of Warsaw. It was like July of 1945. He was very concerned about his mother, his sister, his brother, whom he left behind, so he wanted to see what was going on, and also went to seek his old employer. He used to work uh, in the 1930s for a Danish-Polish joint venture company, and the Polish government had brought back the Danish director of the company, who had retired, to kind of try and revitalize the company, bring it back. And there's a story about how they met quite by accident, but that's beside And It's not my story, it's my dad's story. At any rate, this man, when he recognized my dad, asked him, you know, oh, so where are you? you?" He said, well, I live in New York. My wife lives there. And he said, okay, so why don't you go back to New York and you start running the New York office for us? until we find somebody else okay so that was how my father came back to New York and you know stayed until they recalled him and my sister and I were born during that period and I was as I said I was five months old when I went back to Poland and I remember um, things uh, in Poland I remember I think I remember Stalin's funeral on the radio I remember the Cold War from sort of a different perspective and my father continued to work for shipping companies so at some point we he was sent to Sri Lanka for five years I didn't speak any English at the time my mother spoke English to us my sister answered in English I didn't, I answered in Polish I understood her perfectly but I wasn't going to speak this language Okay. Right. of course when we got to Sri Lanka, I very quickly started speaking English. But throughout those years, and until I was actually a young adult, New York, yeah, New York was a place where, you know, movies took place in New York. Okay? Uh, Baldwin wrote about New York, right? You know, it was just a name. And I, uh, in the 60s and the 70s, I had the opportunity to meet um, quite a lot of my relatives. It was possible then to travel, to visit. My grandfather came for the first time in, since he left as a young man. And the only time. That was the only time I ever met him. And uh, he told me some stories about... You know, leaving Poland and you know coming to to the United States and so on. But I actually uh, did not intend to come to the United States. At any rate, did not intend to come to the United States to live permanently. I wasn't going to settle here. My home was in Poland, and uh, I traveled extensively in in Europe in my 20s, in my 30s, in my early 30s, but uh, never occurred to me, oh, let me go and visit you know, the United States. It was not really an interesting country to me. I remember asking my Swedish brother-in-law, my sister by then was married already, I said, if you could live anywhere not in Sweden, where would you live? And my brother-in-law, who knew the United States, he was uh, also uh, on shi- in shipping, right, he worked on ships, he had visited the United States. He said, I'd love to live in the United States. And I said, uh-huh, but in my mind was this, why? <laughs> why would you want to do that, right? It's completely uninterested, okay? But um, I was, you know, I, I, I told you that I had dropped out of college at some point. Well, I did go back, I got my degree in teaching, in teaching English as a second language, and uh, I was working as an interpreter, as a translator, in a shipyard, okay? And in 1980, I started working two jobs, translating, right? And not, I was not really um, a politically committed person as much as my friends were, because I was a single mother, I was divorced with a daughter, and I felt that it would be irresponsible for me to put myself in the kind of trouble they were potentially putting themselves in. But uh, 1980 came the big strike. That was the year my daughter went to elementary school. And uh, in the months after that, my friends who had become involved with... uh, or were involved previously already that I didn't know about, uh, become involved officially with the Solidarity Movement, they started running out of of interpreters, you know, they needed help, so they would call me, and at that time I was already writing my thesis, I was graduating. They had graduated before me, of course, because I dropped out, but I had more time than I had before, so I did some work, but I did. I worked as a volunteer, one of my friends who was the kind of the official interpreter for Solidarity, and at some point she, a few months into this, she, she realized, she said, "My God, we never paid you." Uh, she said, "Come, come, come, come down to personnel, you know and, and, and sign the contract." I said, "No, no, no, I don't want you to pay me because I have time now, but I don't know." if I will be able to do it next month or even next week, right? So I don't want any obligations. I'll just do what I can, you know. And that turned out to be fairly lucky for me because when uh, martial law was declared, this is all ancient history by now, right? When martial law was declared in 1981, that friend who wanted to employ me, lucky for her, she was out of the country, okay? Another friend, was also out of the country but a few other people were uh, fired from their jobs and you know in a communist country uh, jobs often came with housing so they lost the place they lived in you know it was a pretty devastating situation and I was waiting for something to happen to me but it didn't until the fall of 1983 (laughs) and finally Somehow, they put it together, okay? I guess it worked like, oh, so who was that redheaded woman that you know, somebody reported seeing occasionally, and they somehow got to me. But that was you know, over a year later. And uh, I had dual citizenship all my life from, by virtue of being born in the United States. So when I was invited to have my little conversation at the police headquarters in my hometown of Gdynia, my sister happened to be visiting and she told me, she said, you know, my, my sister has you know some ideas that are a little out of left field, but that's just uh, on first, at first glance, because she said, take some crocheting with you. I said, what? You know what she meant, crocheting. My sister used to stand on lines for food for hours and just crochet lace, right, you know. And she said, take it, she said, you'll keep busy and you'll show the bastards you're not afraid. I said, okay, it makes sense, so that's what I did, right. And uh, I was asked, point blank, wouldn't you like to go to the United States? After all, you have dual citizenship, wouldn't you like to do that? And uh, that first conversation culminated in that was in November of '83, in July, in, in September of '84, after I finally got my degree, because my thesis advisor was in prison, so I had to wait for him to come out. After I got my degree, I left, because I couldn't get a job. I was blacklisted. So that was when I said, okay, this place, this dot on the map that says New York, and then, you know, this this place called Brooklyn, right? Okay. Uh, you know, I guess that's where I'm going, right? And I uh, wasn't, it wasn't possible to fly to New York at that time. There was a sort of a boycott going on. So I flew to Montreal, and I took a bus down from Montreal to New York with my daughter. Um, I, I wasn't going anywhere without her. And um, she fell asleep on the seat and at some point I fell asleep too and I woke up on the Tribro Bridge. And it was about nine o'clock dark, Labor Day weekend, it was getting dark. And the first thing that came through my mind I said, Wow, that's really good camera work. I'm a big movie fan. And then I <laughs> you idiot, this is the real deal, right? <laughs> you know, this is not a movie. <laughs> and Manhattan you know, wearing all the diamonds. And I lived in Brooklyn for two years, in, in Greenpoint for two years. In fact, I lived around the corner from the house where I used to live as a baby. Oh, which street? Diamond Street. Diamond street. Do you know it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my grandparents lived on Jewel Street, which is parallel to Diamond. Yeah. And uh, um, my grandfather's house, still standing there, and uh, one of my two aunts, the older of, my, of my, the two sisters my mother had, she owned, when she married, uh, she and her husband bought the house that shared the back fence with my grandfather's house. So uh, my grandfather by then had died, and uh, somebody else owned the house, but I lived back fence away, so I had a view of my, the back of my, my grandfather's house, and then I moved to the house next to it. For about a year and a half, but housing in Greenpoint is really some of it is really bad quality, and if you don't have a, a certain amount of money, you know that you can put in to repair it and whatever, it is not the you know it is not really good housing. So we moved. We moved to Flatbush after about two years. Okay, and I've been there ever since. Kind of made my home there. But I was very interested in Greenpoint. But I have to tell you, Johann, that is the kind of Poland I don't know. Okay, Most of the people who live in Greenpoint now are from either the northeast or the southeast. I'm from the north. I'm from the Baltic Sea. Okay, so I'm from Gdynia and that's a big cosmopolitan city. Always was, okay? So I felt, in, in Greenpoint, I felt like I was suddenly living in this tiny, tiny town somewhere in what my father would refer to as Poland C. Poland A, Poland B, Poland C. You know, the kind of depressed small town where there aren't very many opportunities, there aren't many jobs. And if they don't see you in church on Sunday, and I'm an an agnostic, then, you know, it's like, really, who the hell are you? You know, you have to toe the line. Now, Greenpoint is different. I think, you know, you have young people living there, all sorts of people, but when I moved there, it was a tiny, provincial, little Polish town in the middle of nowhere, and I was like, I want to be here you <laughs> know it's boring once i moved to flatbush i live really in the middle of a caribbean community and and i say caribbean in the most general sense i have uh, haitian creole speakers i have at first i didn't i couldn't tell the difference but now i can the jamaicans i have the trinis i have the Bajans you know i have every island in the caribbean represented right <laughs> and it I find that, that is the is that that is the vibrant the multicultural Brooklyn that I learned to love Greenpoint was kind of like well I'm, I'm too big a fish for this small pond okay but it had its advantages at the time but I, I remember when you know Williamsburg wasn't even a, wasn't even an idea okay um, my daughter was uh, going to go to junior high school I forget exactly where it was located but she was going to have to walk through a certain section of Williamsburg and I walked there I walked that she was 12 years old you know 11 going on 12 I walked that section and I looked at all these empty warehouses and I thought no this is not a safe place for a kid to be walking from school. And since I worked in the city, I was not going to be able to help her with this. So we have to find some other place. And that was when we took the map, the subway map, and uh, decided that, how did I know this? I don't know. in, In New York, I don't know if you know this, but if you are unemployed and you're looking for a job... The fact that the job is a, an hour and a half away is is justification for not taking it. Anything less than an hour and a half is, you, you can't refuse that job. It's considered reasonably close, okay? So I don't know if we knew that already, my daughter and I at that time or not, but uh, we drew a circle. A circle that was an hour and a half away from where I was working at the time which was the Flatiron Building Yeah, I worked for a German publishing company which is a story but it's not a New York story yeah. uh, so it's off the topic and then we started looking where could we find an apartment that is within this circle or maybe just on the edge of it okay? and this was at the time uh, we had two fair zones remember In some places you had to pay two tokens to get someone on the subway. Uh, And we found Flatbush. We found East Flatbush. And uh, it was a two-fair zone, and that was one of the reasons why the apartments were lower price. The rent was lower, the rent was more reasonable, and that was why we moved there. And she was uh, a short bus ride away from her junior high school, and later, her high school was across the street. So that, you know, that worked for us. And I, I really don't want to move anywhere. I'm comfortable where I am. But that was my, my Brooklyn. And then I started discovering that, oh, this used to be a separate city of its own. I didn't know that when I first came here. Uh, in the perception of most people, I think the last hundred years, Brooklyn was like the, the, the country cousin.
1: You know, yeah,
0: you invite him to Thanksgiving dinner, but he better sit near the end of the table, you know, where nobody can really notice him. You know, the, the really glamorous part of New York was New York, right? What in Brooklyn we always called the city, right? But in fact, Brooklyn as a city was a very strong competitor for New York City for a very long time. And when they became united, when basically New York reached across the river and said, okay, you know, we'll annex you. Basically, that's what it did. Then Brooklyn became the, the sort of the poor, the poor cousin, right? But it has the Brooklyn Museum, it has the Botanic Garden, you know, it has a lot of facilities. It has a lovely downtown area, you know. The Brooklyn Heights, the promenade, you know, all of that. And I started discovering all these fascinating facts about Brooklyn, and uh, I'm still discovering them. It's a a fascinating thing, right? It's a fascinating place. I was just taking the bus down Flatbush Avenue to come here and uh, went past our little Dutch Reformed Church on the corner of Flatbush and Church, and it's under, you know, some heavy-duty restoration. There's still, you know, it's been under restoration the last couple of years and it's still you know got the scaffolding and everything it's not finished flatbush avenue it's amazing how things change in brooklyn you blink you missed it flatbush avenue you know at some point i i worked in the downtown brooklyn area so i used to take a i was lazy i didn't have to do it but i used to take the bus that went all the way downtown And I remember, maybe, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember buildings that were standing empty, and the the windows were blocked with pieces of plywood or cardboard or something, okay? And they they had little curtains painted on these pieces of plywood or blinds, or maybe a, a geranium in a pot, <laughs> supposedly on the windowsill. A cat sitting there, and you know, it, it made it look a little better. But it was still pretty depressing to go past these these empty buildings. And then I think Con Edison started a project that they helped with financing some of these buildings. And now there's not one left. You know. Maybe that's not a good thing because I see a lot of chain drugstores standing on Flatbush Avenue. Why do we need so many drugstores? How many bottles of aspirin do we need? You know, but it's definitely you know there, there's there's stuff going on there. Okay, it is no longer a depressed area. Williamsburg, you know, from the the empty warehouses, it's. It's a busy place. The only thing that Greenpoint never, n- never happened in Greenpoint. It never went empty like that. Okay, there were, you know, there were always people coming in, right, and sort of inhabiting the place. But it was pretty depressing, some of it. Not Diamond Street, maybe, you know. But you know, some people still take care of those little houses. But I, yeah, I remember when you know, if you walked across McCann Park. I remember the battles for the pool in McCarran Park, the pool house, because that had been closed for something like 20 years. And people were fighting to get it open, to get the funding back, and they finally did. And now McCarran Park is this very vibrant center for many activities in summer. But if you walked across McCarran Park and you walked on those streets of East Greenpoint used to be East Greenpoint there were a lot of uh, Italian salomerias and uh, pastry shops and bakeries and so on I don't know if they're still there but they used to be quite a lot of those and of course you know uh, there's the Church of St. Cecilia on the other side which is beyond the golden Park. Mm, and, uh, you know, Poles are very devout Catholics, but they're not very. singing is not their forte, okay? So the few times that I went to the Polish church in Stanislaus in Greenpoint, uh, they, they always invited the, the choir from St. Cecilia's to do their singing because, uh, no, no, we're not singers, okay? <laughs> Can't compare with the people. And of course, you know, there's some hilariously funny things because um, the, my first decision when I came here and I was still living with my, with my aunt, who offered her hospitality for the first couple of months. And, um, you know, my first decision was to register my daughter for school. She was 11 years old. And she had never actually uh, been in the kind of situation she would have to experience of coming back home from school to an empty house. Because I lived in the same house as my parents. So if I wasn't there, somebody was there downstairs, grandma or grandpa, both, right? So um, the public school was a little farther away, but the Catholic school was two blocks away. And uh, although, you know, as a family, we're not terribly devout Catholics, I decided to put her in the Catholic school, and that turned out to be a good decision because she was in this much smaller kind of environment. So she found her feet psychologically much faster, and she learned English quite quickly there. Okay, um, but because I, you know I now had a, a child in Catholic school, you know there kind of there's always there's always the pressure. I don't know whether they were issuing any pressure I felt they were issuing it of having to go to church right so that was the time the only time in my life that I ever actually went to church every Sunday <laughs> you know? yeah. and the uh, Christmas sermon you know that Christmas Eve sermon of course you know and, and all of that I said oh my god you know I'd never done this this was something that I didn't you know and and when, when uh, reporters whom I met in Poland as an interpreter, as a translator, would say, Oh, Poles are such Catholics, I wouldn't argue about it because that was not my place to argue. My place was to translate. But inside my head was always that, Oh, really? I don't know anybody who's so devout. But it turns out, of course, I was dealing, you know, I was looking from the perspective of a big, cosmopolitan, open-to-the-world type of city, right? Not small towns, okay? And here I felt, you know, in Greenpoint, I felt this, this kind of oppressive small-town situation, but I felt that I had to do this. My daughter was a student in the Catholic school, so out of just plain, you know, a common sense, I would do it, until a few months in, my daughter herself told me, Mom, I want to go to public school. And I said, well, well, why? You know, give me an argument, right? Give me the, re- give me a reason. She said, well, I'm going to have to live with everybody in this country. And I said, okay, that's a, that's a convincing argument, right? There you have it. And uh, that was that was the end of her, you know, Catholic school education, and the end of my experiences in attending Catholic Church in Greenpoint, but. You know, it, 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 is an interesting, it is an interesting neighborhood, Greenpoint, but I, you know, it's not really my, my place, not my kind of neighborhood. You know, Flatbush Avenue, the hall is, you know, looks different completely. Yeah. Um, it's, it's gentrifying, which is maybe an unfortunate thing. You know, those chain stores, those chain drug stores, you know, that is not really a good sign. You know, because because what would be much better would be to see local businesses thriving, but that's not happening, okay? Instead, uh, you know, as as you go along, you can see chain stores of different kinds and locations that are for for lease, where, you know, the landlords are kicking people out because they're hoping for more money. So that is not a good sign, okay? Uh, Another thing that I uh, noticed, I think people are less apologetic about living in Brooklyn. When I first moved here in the 80s, um, Brooklyn was not really the place to be. I don't know if you remember, it's an old movie, uh, the movie Saturday Night Fever. Do you remember it and of course it's a, it's a Brooklyn movie right you know it's supposed to be Bensonhurst and the nightclub which I know I know that disco because it was still open when I came here and I dated someone who took me there okay <laughs> so it was kind of still around you know and, and the 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 girl who is their friend right you know the the whole gang of of kids you know and the girl who is who is their friend she lives in Manhattan now right you know and she occasionally slums when she visits right she occasionally visits I guess her parents or something and then you know goes out with this with this bunch of people and uh, at first her pronunciation is very precise right you know just oh that's super you know and then two drinks in you know she's got you know she's talking about my father and my mother and my sister and my brother okay you know and you don't see that anymore in the public perception in movies and plays and other things you know Brooklyn is no longer second rate. I don't think even the Bronx is second rate. You know, the, uh, I think the, at some point the Bronx was kind of the, you know, the fall guy. It was becoming the fall guy. But even the Bronx is now coming back to life. I don't know the Bronx at all, really. But uh, my students uh, tell me if you, you know, you want to, a place to live that's reasonable and fairly good, that's the place to look, right? Brooklyn is no longer the place, you know, you don't have to apologize for living in Brooklyn. Okay, And it used to be so. Now when my mother was a young woman, I remember because she told me this when the first time she visited uh, me here in New York, and I was already living in Flatbush Avenue, in in Flatbush, and we we took the bus along Flatbush Avenue. She told me that um, when she was a young woman, If you wanted to buy anything that was of, you know, sort of elegant, good quality, but you didn't want to go to the city because of time, and of course you would have to pay, you know, Fifth Avenue prices, right? Then you went to Vlad Avenue. That was the place where you could buy a hat, you could buy a bag a gloves, cufflinks for your brother, you know, stuff like that, right? You know, sort of an elegant present. That was the center of business in Brooklyn, and then I remember we were actually—this is a very Brooklyn uh, thing also—we were sitting on a bus that was going along Flatbush Avenue, and she was telling me this, and we were sitting fairly close to the front of the bus so the driver could hear us, and he did the Brooklyn thing—he joined in the conversation, right? And he was a, a middle-aged gentleman. And he said something like, yeah, well, that's, that kept on, you know, Flatbush Avenue kept on being that until, and maybe you don't know this, or maybe you heard about it, the big blackout. There was this enormous blackout that, you know, I mean, the whole of the city went went black. And uh, at any rate, it was two days, okay? You know, there was the blackout, then they somehow managed to, bring it back again, but it was, I guess, a temporary fix. And the next day, it blacked out again, apparently. And uh, that was when a lot of the businesses, according to the bus driver, whose name, of course, I have no idea, you know. (laughs) just, you know, guy we were talking with. uh, 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 After the first night of the blackout, the second night of the blackout, there was a lot of looting of stores on Flatbush Avenue, and apparently that was when, in consequence of that, a lot of those stores just left, they closed down and left. I hinted, the driver didn't say that, but thinking about it later, I think what happened was mm, they were basically following their customers because in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, you know, a lot of people were leaving for the suburbs. And a lot of the stores that had been on Flatbush Avenue were catering to that kind of customer, but they didn't have those customers anymore. On the other hand, a lot of people were moving into the neighborhood who possibly um, either couldn't afford the kind of merchandise that these stores were selling or we're just not interested in this kind of merchandise. I mean, how many people actually wear cufflinks anymore? How many people buy hats, right? So the looting happened probably because these, you know, these elegant stores, they were presenting a tempting target in a neighborhood that was no longer, that no longer consisted of their customers. So they ended up moving to Long Island, moving to Jersey, Westchester, where the customers basically were. Right, and uh, you know, then probably the businesses started, you know, going out of business. The businesses that replaced them, and what I saw was this, this decay. Some years later, right, about ten years later, you know, the the closed down businesses and the locked up windows and so on. Right, but uh, you know, this is this is part of the story of a city. Right, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's fascinating to watch the ups and the downs and the ups and the ups and the downs of this city. But there is, under the surface uh, in, in Brooklyn, there is a current um, that, uh, you know, it's that I would call gentrification. Some years ago, about, what was it? When was Obama elected for the second time? 12, right? In 2012. And, and that was when Hurricane Sandy, came, right? And um, one of my friends contacted me because a lot of my friends originally from Poland, my college classmates, you know, they're sort of dispersed all over the place, right? So one of my friends called me and uh, contacted me and asked me, you know, said, I have someone who is coming to New York. Could she stay with you? I said, fine, no problem. i got plenty of room on my you know, living room couch. If she doesn't mind the living room couch It's, you know, it's fine. So this, this woman, you know, my age, an 80, uh, a photographer from Germany, from Munich. Okay? And uh, she had uh, sort of worked out a plan of coming to New York and uh, taking pictures of New York that are not the, the you know, not the run of the mill stuff. No Statue of Liberty and all that, you know. So my friend who lives in Munich uh, said, Well, why don't you go to Brooklyn? I have a friend who lives in Brooklyn, and that's how. Katarina and I met, right? And so she's staying with me. I go to work every morning. She packs up her cameras, you know, goes off every day, you know, and comes back, and in the evening we meet. And one of the places that she went to was Bedford-Stuyvesant. Now, Bedford-Stuyvesant is a beautiful historic neighborhood, and some of it is now landmarked, as I'm sure you know. And uh, she, I didn't know that she had gone to Bed-Stuy, right? Because, you know, she had her own research and she had her own plan, and then in the evening she told me, she said, you know, I went to bed I went around, you know, very beautiful. I said, yeah, well, it's Landmarked, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she said, but you know, people were giving me the, you know, the hairy eyeball. I was taking pictures here and taking pictures there. And, and she said, I didn't think I was intruding. I was trying not to intrude. I was trying to, you know, why were they giving me these dirty looks? And uh, I wasn't able to explain at first, you know, we kind of, you know, ate supper, you know. Said, I said, you know what, Kate, I think I know why. They think you're working for a real estate developer. Yeah. Okay. And she said, oh, really, uh-huh. And, you know, we kind of talked about it and I put her in the picture and she, you know, remembered some things that she had read also, that confirmed what I was saying might be true. And the next day, when she went there, because she still said, you know, I still want to go down that street, and you know, she actually talked to people, and she said, you know, I'm from Germany, and I'm a photographer, and I, you know, blah blah blah. No hairy eyeball, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but this is the kind of the tension that is under the surface in this in this city. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about today that we didn't get to? Some What is it about Brooklyn that I like? You know, there's one thing that is very, I think, very characteristic of New York in general and Brooklyn in particular is that people live here, it's a big city. But the way many of them behave to others, it's as if they are in a small town. You get on the bus. And somebody says, "Oh boy, this weather isn't it horrible?" You know, and suddenly there's a chat going on, right? And this, I, I love that. I think it's really wonderful, you know. And and yeah, I mean, I don't mean everybody does it. Of course, some people don't, but a lot of people do that. And my students sometimes comment about, "Oh, but people in New York, you know, people in New York are, are rude." I said, mm, "You know, the school I, I teach in is located in Midtown." near Penn Station, right? So I say, well, you know, you have to make the distinction. Are they New Yorkers or are they simply people in New York? Because, I said, many people in New York are not in fact from New York. They're from, you know, hate to say this, but New Jersey comes to mind, right? And they act according to what I call your mother will never know syndrome. You know, I was a kid and a teenager in a small town of thirty thousand people. And if I put my foot wrong anywhere, well, because of the red hair, partly and the fact that it was just thirty thousand people, four days max and my mother knew. Okay? (laughs) If I did something wrong on Monday, on Thursday I was busted. Okay? There was no way you could do anything wrong without somebody finding out sooner or later. Okay? But then you come from this small town somewhere to New York and say, Wee! My mother will never know. I can be as rude as I want, and she'll never find out. And I think for some people, their good manners and their consideration for fellow men tends to slip. Mm-hmm. You know, like 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 makeup on a hot day. It just kind of slides down, you know. And and some people, and many New Yorkers are like that they hold on to their good manners, they hold on to their good nature and their their friendliness under pressure. You know, this is the only city in, in the world, and I've been to a few,